All right, all right. Welcome back to another week, another episode of a little more goodness coming straight to you from the riverside here in beautiful Steeston, British Columbia, Canada. Uh, we're trying out something new. We're trying recording on the Riverside app. We usually use the Zoom, but uh, we're riversiding today. And I'm here with my co-host, my dear friend, my neighbor, Diener. Welcome, welcome, Dean. Yes. Thank you. Good to see you again, Zach. Always good to be together, even if it's virtual this way. But excited for today's conversation. It is a good one. Can't wait to share it with everyone. Yeah, tell us what's happening this week, Dean. Tell us about this week's conversation. Well, today we have joining us the leader of the Green Party for the province of British Columbia, where we call home, Sonia Fersenau. And... You know, when we first uh, thought about uh, the idea of having her on, we were like, well, we're not really like a political podcast. We're not really partisan. I mean, we've had Val Litwin on before, who's a politician, but there's always some level of like, oh, should we entertain this conversation? And and I just feel like sitting down with Sonia immediately, um, I was just so captivated by her ability to converse and her knowledge, her breadth of knowledge, her energy, her enthusiasm. And I just left this conversation not feeling like it was a political conversation at all, but feeling so filled with hope and inspired and captivated by her vision of like what is best for our collective well-being as a society. And honestly, I can say like politics aside, Sonia is someone that we should all be looking to, listening to in terms of just great ideas for our collective good. And so I'm really, really excited that we A, had this conversation and that we get to share it with all of you. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think I could echo absolutely everything you just shared. Uh, I felt the same. I felt so inspired about politics, about the future of Canada. It gave me a lot of hope as a parent, as a citizen, as a member of the community at large. Uh, I feel like over the past, you know, three to four years, or maybe forever, there's been a lot of division politically, um, and it hasn't really been that pleasant. You know, it's been fairly ugly as an observer, as a citizen of of BC and Canada, and talking to Sonia just filled me with hope, joy, love, positivity. Um, I walked away, like my mind was really blown by the conversation. So I encourage all of you to, to dive deep into it. Um, and Sonia really does present hope for, for possibility for a way of living where, you know, we can all foster, you know, a positive relationship to each other, to where we live, to, you know, those that came before us. It's, um, truly an inspiring conversation that I was um, honored to be a part of. Yeah, totally. And we touch on things that are, have been important to us as individuals, as uh, people of this land, from the forest, the old growth forests, to our biodiversity, to our indigenous communities, to rethinking how we could have uh, an economy of well-being, which is a cool idea she touches on, um, advice for like the next generation. We get into a lot of, of, just really meaningful and important topics and really like the the through line of this podcast of this conversation is Sonia is able to paint an incredible picture of what our world could be like 
she invites us to see what's possible. She invites us to imagine a more beautiful future that puts our collective wellness at the center. And I mean, it's just, you're going to love it. You're going to love this conversation. I know it. Amazing. Before we uh, roll things over to, to Sonia, uh, Dean, you want to tell us uh, who this week's episode is sponsored by? Yes, we are happy to say that this week's episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, makers of AG1, the daily health elixir that Zach and I have been taking for a while now. It's uh, a beautiful medley of 75 high-quality ingredients, vitamins, minerals, nutrients, probiotics, prebiotics, all the stuff that's going to make you feel good, do good, be good, embody all the goodness. Uh, I just love my morning routine of AG1. And it's really been cool hearing more and more of you, uh, our friends and dear listeners who have gotten on the AG1 bandwagon and are trying it and and are noticing um, just how it's made an impact in your own life. So thank you for using our little code. Thank you for leveling up your own health and wellness by participating in the AG1 movement. And um, I just love it because it's so simple. It's, you know, the cup of water, my scoop of AG1, shake it, drink it. And I know I've done something right at the beginning of the day that's just so good for me. It carries me through those micro habits that make, uh, make big gains over time. There we go. So if you two would like uh, a little bit of AG1 by Athletic Greens in your life, we do recommend it. Uh, head down to www.athleticgreens.com slash more good and uh, using our affiliate link athleticgreens.com slash more good athletic greens will hook you up with a year supply of vitamin d and five free travel packs it's a beautiful thing so don't delay get your ag1s today athletic greens you're gonna love it all right on to this week's episode. All right, all right. Welcome back to another week of A Little More Good. We're very, very excited to dive into some big topics, uh, some some global topics, some national topics, some provincial topics with the leader of the BC Green Party, Sonia Firstenau. Thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm so delighted to be here. Yeah, if, uh, if this conversation is anything like our, our pre-pod, I'm excited to all the directions that we're going to go, um, you know, just kind of following your story online and, and where you've come from, from from teaching, from roots in Alberta, from a trip to Germany that uh, lit a light uh, on to what's possible. Um, I'm excited into all the corners that we're going to go into today. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to be here too. And as I said when we came in, this is my favorite medium. You know, long form answers, having conversations, and being able to get deep into something is is my favorite thing to do. It's, yeah, it's kind of like a bit of a rebellion. This is what we love about it. To current media, you know, like mm-hmm. we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, we're on all of these very short attention span mediums where we're scrolling for you know, two to three seconds at times looking for headlines. Uh, podcasts kind of force you to to slow down and to go deep. And, you know, it might take you a week to listen to an episode if you're into it, but uh, it's it's a it's a fuller, deeper experience mm-hmm. than than a headline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we love love the format as well, and so we're so glad to have you uh, 
in and even as we were just pre-potting the conversation i know uh, oftentimes people are you know what they do for a living and we've had entrepreneurs and you know artists and creatives and the beautiful thing is that we're all so much more than like the title of what we do and i just love already like hearing some of the stories and sharing the laughs of of yeah who you are and you know what's got you to this point and what are the passions in your life that have have brought you to a place right now where you're you know working to create teams and investing in people and investing in even a you know people in the largest sense of like this big community that will we are all part of at least geographically here uh in terms of bc and and of course beyond but um it's so good to get to know you and i know that um story is like how we all connect mm-hmm. and so we're really excited to dive into yours today and hear a little bit more about yeah. you sonia and story i mean i i studied history and uh that idea of trying to understand who we are, how we got here, through studying what's left, you know, the written record or the archaeological record, uh, the art record, the architecture record, what does that tell us about the story of who we've been and who we are and who we could be? Mm. And so story is my thing. I love stories. When I was a teacher, I used to say to my students, is it story time? And they'd be like, yes, it's story time. So good. Yes. I I love that, what we could be. Um, You know, we mentioned before we started that Dean and I have, uh, we both have young children and... And I think that's a lot of the storytelling that um, that I share with my kids of, of what we could be. Because when you're two and you're five, anything is possible. And we want to uh, illuminate all of those possibilities. And, and you know, we talk about, um, we talk a lot about on this pod about our limiting belief systems. And we're trying to create limitless belief systems. And I think that just uh, kind of alludes to what you're talking about. These stories of what we can be versus these stories of what we can't be, you know? Can I tell a little story? Yes, it's story time. We're here for it. (laughs) So I was in Nelson last weekend uh, announcing our new candidate, Nicole Charlwood, and we had an event at uh, a little uh, hall uh, outside of Nelson, and there was this older man, and he came up to me afterwards, and he, he said, I need to talk to you. All these things that you've talked about tonight, about you know, democracy and well-being and all the things we're going to talk about. He said, those are fine. Those are nice. But there's no time. He said, you, you, the women and the children, you just have to go stand in front of the coal trains. And I said, well, what's gotten you to this place? That that's what you feel is, is what's necessary. And he said, I didn't believe any of this stuff about climate change before. I was a fundamentalist Christian. I had all these very strong beliefs. He said, and then my grandchild was born, and it changed everything. And he said, and now all I want to do is make sure that that child has a, a, a world to grow up in that is safe and healthy. And he's, he's at the end of his life. He has cancer, and he's, but he's the, the, the passion that was coming from him. And I, I worked it through him, and I said, what is the feeling? Like, what is it that's creating the sense of urgency? And we got to love, the love for his grandchild. And I said, that's why I'm here too, right? And how do we operate from that place? Because mm-hmm. that's, that's the thing that can change everything. Yeah, I think we're going to get into this because we want to talk about ideas that unite versus divide, how we build 
bridges instead of walls. And I think love is obviously one of those things, you mm-hmm. know? We all want to be loved. It's a simple, simple desire, human desire mm-hmm. that we all want to be cared for. We all want to be feel loved and to be loved and, and to share love. Yeah. So if we rewind back from that conversation mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that moment where you helped, you know, this gentleman realize like the source of what he was feeling, which can feel like angst and uncertainty. And I think a lot of us carry that is the sense of like, no, we really love and care about this place, our planet, our future, mm-hmm. future generations. But for you, like getting into, you know, giving your life to this work in politics, um, when did you realize like that was maybe a primary driver for you? Did it come first and you're like, because of my love for this, I'm going to jump in? Or was it like, I, I'm jumping in and then you realize, oh, there's this fire within me that's causing me to like go deeper and stay in it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is such a great question because um, as soon as I told you that story, I thought, oh, this this comes back to Sean again. And so, you know, backstory, moved to Sean again in 2011 uh, started seeing these signs about no toxic soil in our watershed, thought, what's going on? Got the backstory that the government was considering a permit for 5 million tons of contaminated soil being put at the headwaters of our drinking watershed. And at the time thought, no government would do that. Like, governments don't do that, right? Like, they don't put drinking water at risk. They protect drinking water. That's what governments do. <laughs> and then they issued the draft permit, Easter 2013, And the draft permit for this facility listed all of the toxins that would be allowed in this site, dioxin and furans and lead and polycarbonated hydrocarbons and everything you do not want anywhere near your drinking water. Mm -hmm. And I was so aghast that this was even being considered, that there was a draft permit that had been put together and that the, the kind of bus was rolling on this. And that's really when I I launched into the work and I was teaching at the time and we did letter writing events and and letters to the editor and letters to our MLAs. And and I thought, they're not going to do this. Like, they're going to stop. They're going to come to their senses. And of course, they didn't. And they issued the permit. And at the the outset of that, so 2013 and, and into 2014, there was a lot of anger and angst. It was like, how dare you put our community at risk? How dare you do this? Who do you think you are? This is our community. And then as the the momentum built and as that angst got bigger and bigger and there was a pivotal moment, it was a Friday the 13th in November 2015, uh, and there was a massive rainstorm and they'd been dumping this soil at the site and there'd been protests and all we'd been at it for two years straight trying to stop this. There was court cases, the environmental appeal board hearings. I mean, this was this was an all-in effort. And then there is this rainstorm and water is flowing right off this site, right into the adjacent property, which is a park owned by the Cowichan Valley Regional District, and right down into the creek that wends its way into Shawnigan Lake, which is a drinking water source for 12,000 people. And there was a... Uh, an order from uh, the health authority at that point, a do not use water order. So not boil, like don't use the water. And here we were less than a year into this landfill operating and the people on Shawnigan Lake were told, don't use your water. 
And what that resulted in was, you know, hundreds of people in the gymnasium. A few days later, I called a meeting. I was by this point the area director I'd run in 2014. And there were, the, the gym was packed. You just have to, like, hundreds of very upset, very angry, worried, scared people. Mm-hmm. And it was at that point that I, I really leaned into, we have to operate from a place of love here. We love our community. We love this lake. We love this watershed. We have a love for a vision of a future that we have for Seanigan. And we are here because we're invested in that love. And a week later, there were about 110 of us. We built teams. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I'd, I'd worked with some folks that were like, teaching about how to build teams in organizing. And uh, Rosalie comes up to me at the, that gymnasium that night and, and all that angst, and she says, Sonia, build your teams. And so I identified what teams we needed. We needed about 13. And we had a meeting, and we identified who was willing to be team captain for the fundraising team, the research team, the, uh, we called it the waste site management team. That was where you go up and stand in front of 40-ton trucks in the morning. Uh, There was the IT team, there was the media team, there was the social media team. And so suddenly we were not a a giant community, you know, wondering what to do. We were organized into these 13 teams. And Mm. the amazing thing that happened was about three weeks later, I get a phone call and, and this fellow says, I have a helicopter. If you can bring the press and and the politicians, I'll fly them up and down Shawnigan Lake, and they can see from above what this is. And we organized, we called it Helicopter Day, January 6, 2016. It was a national press event. We had every news outlet from across the country, all the local ones. We had John Horgan, he was leader of the opposition. He and I went in a helicopter together. We had Rafi, uh, <laughs> W5 came. And we pulled off, all of us volunteers, none of us with media experience, we pulled off a day-long media event. And as one of the journalists said, you guys outdid the Olympics. Like your press binder was better than what I would get at the Olympics. Wow. And once we had those teams, and once it was very clear that we were oriented to love, we were unstoppable. Hmm. And it was... A year and about six weeks later that the permit was revoked. And it's the first time in BC that Ministry of Environment has revoked a permit. Wow. The first time. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) So I love this because your origins in politics come from love and activism. Yeah. And stewardship for the land and your community, which is so cool. Yeah. Um, for the sake of storytelling, I'm just I'm just curious. I, I read that um, you had a, a a moment in Germany that was also kind of a light bulb moment for uh, waking up to uh, interest in democracy and politics. Can can you share that story and that experience? Yeah, absolutely. So I was my dad was born in northeast Germany in October 1939. So wow. uh, it was a, quite a time to be born. Yes. His three older brothers were all conscripted into the German army. They were all teenagers at the time. I think the oldest was 17, and then 16, 15, gone. Um, And then 
his uh, younger sister was born about a year and a half, two years later. His father was taken by the Russian army, died in a Russian POW camp. Dad never saw his father again. And so it was my dad and his mom and my dad's little sister growing up in this war-torn world. Dad describes like he would go out to the farmer's fields and pick up the potatoes that were too small for the farmers, and that's what they were subsisting on. Wow. And uh, being in a field once and a, a plane flying over and strafing the field with bullets. Another time he and his friends went out, they found an abandoned gun. The gun went off. Wow. The bullet went through my dad's knee. And uh, he, his mom got him to the, you know, the local doctor in the village and they fixed him up and he became a runner and a soccer player. So he, he amazingly recovered. Uh, and at one point... Uh, uh, typhoid went through the village. His mom got very, very sick and says to him, he's six years old at this point, I'm going to die. You need to take care of your little sister, oh if gosh. you can imagine. Um, she survived, thank goodness, and had the foresight after the war to recognize that the the border between East and West Germany was becoming tighter and tighter and tighter. And... Uh, sewed all their valuables into their clothing, had breakfast, left the breakfast dishes on the table, got on the train to Berlin and said, with a picnic basket, no luggage, no indication that they were going anywhere. Um, because at this point you could cross the border, but if you looked like you were fleeing, they would stop you. Mm -hmm. uh, so took her two small children into West Berlin, went to a refugee camp, were flown into West Germany six months later, and started a new, a new life there. And uh, his mom and his sister stayed in West Germany. His brothers all survived. Uh, two came to North America and one stayed in Germany. So then I'm 10 years old. My dad's a psychologist, came here to BC, taught himself English by reading a German-English dictionary, finished <laughs> high school in Sydney, BC, went to UVic, first graduating class 1963, had two kids, moved to Edmonton, did his master's degree and his PhD at U of A in psychology, and became a professor. Wow. I mean, it, you, you know, there's like... This, <laughs> what a story. This is like... Resilience. He is amazing. And was the most kind, even gentle man I've ever known. Never raised his voice once. Uh, certainly raised me to know the feeling of unconditional love from a parent. And he was a born teacher. His students loved him. He was a storyteller. Uh, he, he basically built the university transfer program at Grant McEwen College, which became McEwen University, and then came out to uh, the island and was working at Malaspina, building the program there, diagnosed with cancer at 60 and died at 61. Oh, wow. Um, and so that was, I was 31, so that was 21 years ago. Um, and definitely the greatest loss I've ever experienced. I, we, I loved him so much. When I was 10, there was a, a psychology conference in Leipzig, East Germany. And dad had this insatiable curiosity about everything, but particularly about what is it like in the country where I grew up behind the Iron Curtain, so 1980. And he 
takes us to West Germany. I meet my grandmother for the first time. I meet my Aunt Christa. I meet my Uncle Gunther, uh, who worked for the electric company. I got roller skates. I was having a really great time in Germany. And then he says, okay, we're going to go to East Germany now. And his family was like, you can't go to East Germany. <laughs> like, this is the height of the Cold War here. Yeah. He's like, it's okay. I have a Canadian passport and a Canadian daughter. <laughs> and and uh, of course, I'm 10. I'm thinking, whoa, whoa fun. What, what's going to happen next? So we go into East Germany. The first thing that happens is we're, put, we're at the border. We're, we're put into a small room. We're interrogated in German. So I didn't really know what happened. They took our passports. And they assigned, uh, basically, secret agents to us or, you know, police people that followed us everywhere. We weren't allowed to stay in the hotel where the conference was happening. We were assigned to a different hotel, which was fascinating, <laughs> a little rundown. Um, and my memories, of course, this was a long time ago, but my memories of East Germany are very... My memories of West Germany are all in color. You know, I, I, the, I have these vivid memories of the, the beautiful greenery and nights out and eating in restaurants and visiting with family. All my memories of East Germany are really in black and white. Mm. There's no color. And uh, we went from this country that had rebuilt after the war and was thriving into a country where the buildings that had been bombed during the war were still bombed out and they were just behind a you know a low wall and it was just a hole in the ground yeah. and where you know we were under surveillance all the time where clearly people were anxious um and on our last night there we had dinner with this family and there were young kids so I was playing with the kids and i noticed that the the couple that was talking to my dad the mom was crying and I asked him about it later, and he said they'd asked him to take some documents across the border, and he had to refuse because he didn't know, is this a setup, is it a trap, or if I get caught, you know, what are the implications? And, um, and when we went back across the border into West, West Berlin, um, seeing the, the dogs go under the train, looking for people that are hanging under always the armed soldiers with automatic weapons, young, like teenagers, they were so young. The Russian tanks that would drive through the middle of Leipzig when we were there, covered like with soldiers on it. And so this experience, uh, as a Canadian child growing up in Edmonton, right, like all the benefits of all the things that we have in this country, I describe it as my experience of not democracy. And what it did for me and to me really was make the, the notion of democracy not a theory, theoretical idea, but very, very real. Because the opposite of democracy is a place that none of us should ever want to be. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think it was a real gift for him to to bring me and to we had lots of conversations about it in the the many decades afterwards and it has instilled just this fierce defense and passion for democracy and i i am so glad to have adam olson who feels exactly the same way i mean he is he is a pit bull for democracy and i think that we are so 
oriented this way in our work in the legislature. And we can see all the ways that we are failing to really adhere to democracy, whether it's a lack of transparency, it's a lack of really showing the work of government. It's very hard to really understand what informs decisions. It's, it's not measuring what are we trying to achieve here mm. and then being honest about that. And we know, we can see it's being measured by, you know, like the Edelman Trust Barometer. We're losing trust in democracy, in our governments, in our public institutions. And that trust is, that is the fabric of democracy. That is the absolutely necessary fiber between governments and the public. And governments have this huge burden of responsibility to continuously strengthen that fiber. And yet what we're getting is the opposite. Mm. They're weakening it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that story. I mean, it's incredible. What an incredible journey and life (laughs) that, that your father lived. And um yeah that's just it's fascinating to hear i love hearing people's stories like uh, i was saying to someone even just earlier today hearing their family story similarly kind of like harrowing journey and escape from um you know oppressive systems and saying like there's so many people with these stories and it's like it could be a movie mm-hmm. like it literally could be a movie and these stories are everywhere mm-hmm. and it's it's i think it's a privilege when we get to hear them so thank you for sharing and um, I'm curious, like leaning into that idea of democracy mm-hmm. and how important it is and how vital it is for us to have it in order to have the lives that we're accustomed to living, at least in this part of the world. Is there a disconnect from stories like the one you just shared in our modern culture that is making people maybe not know the value of what we have? Like we've, we've had it pretty good. There's been recessions, and of course, the last couple of years with, with the pandemic has really shifted the way people, it forced us to shift the way we live for, for a while. But there hasn't really been like that reckoning of a global like world war, and th- democracy was at stake in this, yeah. right? I mean, I guess the closest thing would be COVID, and people definitely had that sense that this is a huge event that is shifting and democracy mm-hmm. is at stake. But is there some connection between that that loosening or that losing some of that trust Mm -hmm. and the fact that like we've had it so good Mm -hmm. for quite some time now or what would you say is like how do we build that how do we continue Mm. to to grow that trust yeah i've been i've been talking a little bit about this lately and and what role we can play and I'll, i'll get there in a minute but i think one of the things i've been describing it as is is democracy is a contact sport <laughs> like mm. it's not something you sit on the sidelines of and i think one of the the contributing factors to where we are right now is this idea that as a citizen in a democracy my job is to vote once every four years. Right. Mm. If if that. If that. Yeah. And in the last provincial election, we had a 50% voter turnout. Half. Half didn't even do that. Mm-hmm. Right? But in fact, that's like the teeniest part of your responsibility in a democracy as a citizen. Right? It, just as I'm saying, governments have a huge burden to, to protect and nurture the trust and the relationship between government and institutions and the public citizens have this responsibility to to be committed to this being a thriving society that there is a discourse that is constructive and productive 
um, and that we we not make the mistake of thinking democracy is about me and my individual right to do and say whatever I want, because it's not. It is about our responsibility to work collectively for collective well-being. And it it I think we've had four decades now of kind of governments-oriented in the West, so UK, US, Canada, towards this idea of like, democracy is really about you as an individual, and you're going to get a super special uh, tax credit on hockey equipment if you vote for us, mm-hmm. right? And, and we went down this road of really, it's, it's neoliberalism, which is this, this idea that society is really oriented around just individuals, and you, you, you make it or break it as an individual. And it, that has meant that we've lost a huge amount of our social safety net. I call it a, a high wire now. It's not a social safety net. Uh, and we can see that in just raw numbers. We have over 20,000 people in British Columbia that don't have a place to live. Like, that's unacceptable in a province and a country with as much wealth as we have. And it's unacceptable in light of the benefits that are pouring out of our province and our country to private corporations. When you have oil and gas companies saying, you know, we made $44 billion in profits last year and people can't afford to fill their tank or buy groceries because the cost of food has gone up because the cost of gas has gone up and now people are having to rely on food banks. And, and that equation between the, the kind of economic world and the conditions that companies can work in and the effects on people and the collective well-being, government comes in between that. And government's job is to say, of course you're welcome to set up business here and, and come in and invest and, and do your work. However... These are the conditions. You're going to protect the environment. You're going to ensure that you are not profit-taking at the expense of, of people in this society. We're going to put conditions like taxation. Uh, we're going to make sure that there are limits to how much you can take without giving back, mm-hmm. right? And we've that equation is broken. And I just heard this morning, you know, there are renewed calls for windfall profit taxing on companies that have basically profiteered from a war in the Ukraine right now. Uh, Sorry, Ukraine, a war in Ukraine right now. And, uh, you know, that is straight up war profiteering. Mm -hmm. And who's harmed by that? People. Like just people trying to get by. And government's job is to say, hold on, you know, we're not a resource colony. We are a society that focuses on ensuring that people have their basic needs met, that their well-being is at the center of what we're doing. And if you want to come in, we'd love to have you come and operate here. But these are the conditions. Yeah. And I think that uh, we've seen four decades of the erosion of the role that government is meant to be playing. And now we have people saying, well, what government doesn't do anything for me. Mm-hmm. I don't trust them. Who are they in this for, right? And when you see things like, 
LNG Canada, Shell, Petronas, you know, these are multinational, multi-billion dollar companies getting $6 billion from the provincial government in BC uh, as subsidies to their project. I, I think that should make us question where are the interests of this government? Whose interests are being protected? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I loved what you said there about wellness. Well-being should be at the center of the equation. And I think that's often something that's missed. And, um, you know, we talk about individuals. Um, I think a lot of our, our issue is is not seeing people as individuals. We can other groups, we can other issues um, and kind of dehumanize these things so that it's okay because it's it's them, it's not us. Mm -hmm. But when we start to humanize individuals and see, you know, that person as a father, a son, a brother, mm -hmm. you know, a human, having a human experience, um, we can get back to that that well-being being at the center of the equation. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you, you spoke about the homelessness, and I, I'm curious about, um, I, I've heard you speak on, on safe supply as well, and I, I read somewhere that like six there's six people that die a day in BC from drug overdoses, and I used to work in, in Gastown and the east side of Vancouver, and, and um, it's, it's easy to other people living in the downtown east side. Um, but when you start to connect and ask questions, the stories are so rich and, and how their life got to where they are are these incredible stories and you start to connect and mm -hmm. see this tapestry of, of, of human connection. I'd like to get into the, the safe supply. Mm -hmm. um, I shared before the podcast, I had a friend recently, a uh, close friend from high school overdose, and um, he came from a upper middle class suburban family with all of the opportunity in the world. And, you know, I think it, this is just an example that like drug addiction um, is affects everybody. It's not, um, you know, a problem strictly um, with you know, impoverished communities or mm -mm. however we want to other that equation. Again, it's, it's, it's a problem that affects all communities. Mm -hmm. um, can you get into safe supply and the, the pandemic or the issue of drugs that we're mm -hmm. facing here in BC? Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to, to talk about this. Um, I was on the, the all party health committee over last summer. So, over a hundred hours of testimony from people all over the province, uh, everything from you know the chief medical health officer to peer groups that are supporting people who use drugs, mm -hmm. and everything in between. And I think let's let's just start with, as you say, like let's get a really accurate picture of this. So the data just came out from the coroner about uh, 2022 second highest number of deaths from a toxic drug supply in BC's history. Only about one in five of those deaths are downtown Vancouver. Yeah. Four out of five are not. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the vast majority of people who are dying from this being poisoned by a toxic drug supply, they're being poisoned, um, 
are men in their homes, most of them employed, mm-hmm. a lot of them working in the trades. Uh, we heard a lot of input from uh, from the trades on the committee. There is a you know work hard, play hard kind of culture, and uh, that has become deadly because the drug supply is chaotic. It is you have no idea what you're accessing when you use drugs that are bought from from the street. Uh, it may be what you're told it is, and it may be something entirely different. It might have fentanyl in it. It might have benzodiazepines. It might have both, mm-hmm. in which case uh, your heart and your lungs are going to stop functioning if there's enough of those two substances, and you're going to die. So I, th- I think we have, as you, like, Zach, your point, like, start with humans, mm-hmm. Right. These are our fellow human beings. Mm-hmm. These are people with whole lives and whole stories and rich lives and they're artists and they're carpenters and they're dreamers and, and everything. Uh, and, and I think this othering is really dangerous and I'm, I'm, I'm working as hard as I can to kind of be a voice against that. And then let's also acknowledge, like most of us, and I said this in my speech in the legislature, I start my day with my drug of choice. It's two shots of espresso, uh, hot water and cream, every single day. And before I have that drug, I'm not functioning at the capacity I want to function at. And then a lot of people end their day, or have the middle of their day with another drug of choice, whether it's a drink at lunch or whether it's a little bit of cannabis at 420 Mm. or it's a combo in the evening, right? We have a lot of legalized, regulated drug use in this province, in this country. We have regulated drugs that are harmful. We just heard from, you know, Health Canada, two more than two drinks of alcohol a week is detrimental to your health, right? But we're not looking at someone who had three glasses of wine last night and saying, oh, man, you know, you, you really have a problem. Mm-hmm. Probably going to get you into, you need to get into treatment right now, right? So there's a spectrum of drug use. There's a spectrum of the kind of drugs that people use. But as humans, we use drugs. I, almost all of us, right? There is a rare person out there that doesn't use any kind of substance mm-hmm. that changes their state a little bit right mm-hmm. right yeah. and and we have stigmatized the use of certain drugs while we have glamorized the use of other drugs and alcohol is a a drug that causes enormous harm uh it is a huge cost to our healthcare system it shortens people's lives it causes uh problems with people's behavior. We know that there's a link between alcohol and domestic abuse, right? So let's be frank when we're talking about drugs, that we often only talk about this one subsection of drugs Mm -hmm. and we, you know, ignore all the facts of of these other drugs that we're all using, Yeah. right? The drug supply right now, the illicit drug supply, because it's not regulated, means that somebody can go out one weekend in a whole year and say, I'm going to go to the club tonight and I'm going to get some drugs and just dance my head off for the whole night. And unfortunately, 
they, they die. And this is not uncommon. Or it's a young person who's going to experiment and they die. And this was in the coroner's report. We had more young people under 19 die last year than we've ever had. So I think we have to just ask ourselves, the starting question is, are we okay with six people in this province dying every day? Being killed by a highly toxic, chaotic drug supply that is feeding itself, feeding into a, an underground economy that is enormously harmful, that is violent, that is causing a lot of chaos on our streets. Mm -hmm. And so safe supply currently available by prescription uh, to a very small number of people of the, you know, in 2019, there was a report on how many people are using opioids in this province. It's over 100,000. Wow. Safe supply is available to a couple thousand. So for the rest, you're rolling, you're rolling the dice, right? And it's not like you can just say, today I'm going to stop using opioids. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. Um and then, and then step back and ask, you know, Gabor Mate talks about this. What is this a symptom of, right? If we look at our, our society and we look at, at us collectively and we see that there is unwellness, right? That people are not well. People are really struggling. Uh, and one of the ways that people can cope with pain, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual, is to use drugs. And when I talked to somebody in, in uh, Duncan about this a couple of years ago, he said, it hurts for my head to be clear because of the memories that come in and, and the trauma that I have experienced. It hurts for my head to be clear. And I think we have to have empathy, we have to have compassion, and we have to say, what, what are the conditions that we can create for people to be well? Right? Mm -hmm. And if that includes using a safe supply and being well, then let's create those conditions. What are the conditions we need to create for people to stay well? well we have almost no access to, to mental health care. Unless you can afford to pay a counselor or you're at the point where you need a psychiatrist, too late, right? The proactive mental health care that we can all benefit from, um, whether it's a psychologist giving us some behavioral uh, tips about how to create better habits in our lives or uh, how to orient ourselves towards being well, or it's a counselor that we can get help with our relationships or with our own journeys, our own trauma. I think we almost all of us have trauma. Mm -hmm. We don't have that. And so we're saying to people, we're not going to create the conditions where you have access to what you need to, to be healthy and well, but then we're going to stigmatize you when you are using a substance in order to find a way to feel well, even if it's for a short time, mm -hmm. to find a way to not have the pain that you live with and that hasn't been addressed, that trauma. And so, you know, I, I heard from so many people this summer and I had some of the most, you know, heart-wrenching conversations 
And one of the things that I heard over and over were the peers, the people who are are trying to provide these conditions with, you know, very little resources and support from government and being themselves stigmatized for working with people who use drugs. And that they are all, every single one of them that I talked with was operating from a place of absolute empathy and compassion and love for their fellow human being. Yeah, I, I mean, I really think that's the, that's the difference. It's too easy to stand in a place of judgment rather than standing in a place of inquiry and empathy and curiosity to say, okay, that's not like my story or my coping mechanism or I don't understand why. But if we see it from a place of like not uh, participating in risky behavior or anything, which is normally how it's categorized, but instead seeing it as a maybe, maybe it's a harm reduction tool for this person and saying it's not the end of their journey but it's going to help them move forward. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it's it's always interesting when I think like legislation and government gets into a place where it's talking about things that are formally illicit and a large section of the population would still say like, no, like drugs are bad. Like we've been conditioned by, you know, the 1980s and the war on drugs. And it's interesting, like, you know, Zach and I are often in the, in the health and wellness kind of sphere and world. And it's like, for the longest time, like fat was demonized. Don't eat fat because it will make you fat or it will make you this or give you these symptoms. And, and yes, that's true to a point, but not carte blanche. Mm-hmm. And same with like salt, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have salt, don't put, but it's like, we need sodium. We need sodium, especially if we're runners and athletes. And so sodium was demonized and all these things. And these are just like food additives or foods that we can eat. And now same so with some of these, you know, otherwise or typically known as like illicit, illegal mm-hmm. drugs seeing them as like potential pharmaceuticals, Mm -hmm. which we have a whole host of drugs that we're okay with because they come from a doctor. But again, some we've said, no, those ones are the bad ones. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even the conversation in BC, I know around like psilocybin Mm -hmm. and the way that it can help with people's mental health and that those, that research and stuff is still new. And I, I mean, we need to make sure we're making informed decisions, but there's a huge push of people who you know I I know and have heard of and read up read about where they're saying well this has helped me in ways mm-hmm. that the medicine prescribed by my mm-hmm. caregivers it actually didn't help me yeah. and so I'm doing something illegal but I'm operating at my best and I'm I'm able to be my best and therefore do the best for for you know society or my family mm-hmm. and so it's that delicate dance perhaps of saying let's let's lead with curiosity mm-hmm. and compassion. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's a really um, important place to stand from in terms, especially in terms of being, you know, a leader of, of a political movement, right? Yeah, and, and I've, I've really, you know, since being in this role, which I'm still like, what happened? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How did I get here? Uh, I'm, I'm fortunate to have a 15-year-old uh, who has the best eye roll in the world. And so she keeps me rooted right down like yeah. I'm just a mom. I was going to say, at the end of the day, it's mom. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, <laughs> here I am in my flizz pajamas at the end of the day with my knitting needle. Um, the gift that I am so grateful for in this role has been the gift of building relationships with people that I might never have known. Mm. And people who, 
you know, wouldn't have existed in my little sphere of the world when I was a teacher and, and all those things in, in Victoria or in Shawnigan Lake. And I, you know, moms, indigenous moms whose children have been taken from them by MCFD, Ministry of Children and Families, um, people who are, like I said, peers, drug users, people who use drugs, um, people who are advocates for uh, people with disabilities. These conversations and these relationships have transformed me. And like I am going to be curious until the day I die. Mm. And I'm certainly never going to think, oh, I've got all the answers. Like you don't, this is, you don't get into a role like this and suddenly somebody hands you the, the chip and you download it and like, yeah. oh, now I have all the answers. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I have more questions today mm-hmm. than I did two years ago. And then I did 10 years ago and that I did 20 years ago. And I hope that tomorrow I have more questions than I did today. Right. But the orientation is how can I serve? And who do I serve? And I, I get the greatest satisfaction from my work when I can be of service to somebody who has not been served by our systems and by our history and by our institutions. That's who I want to serve. Mm. I love that. Um, you know, we've, we're talking about some systems that need changing. I think if there was any silver lining from the pandemic, we saw a lot of systems that were breaking, that were um, hurtful to a lot of people, um, that only served certain people. And we, you mentioned service and service to everybody. Um, so we talk about safe supply and you talked about you know, uh, corporations making profit over people. Can you bring up some old systems that you believe need to be brought into light because they need evolution, they need to be changed in a in a regener- regenerative, sustainable way that supports mm-hmm. all people? Yeah, I'll start with children and families. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, these ministries, these child welfare systems really came out of... Uh, you know, the, the residential school era mm. and are just suffused with this notion and this culture that indigenous people can't be trusted to raise their own children. Mm-hmm. And that exists to this day. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did some work in Cowichan that I'm very proud of. We brought people together in Cowichan around this issue. We called it Cowichan Community of Caring. And it was, you know, moms and grandmas and parents uh, who had suffered at the hands of the child welfare system, either themselves or having their own children removed. It was social workers. It was um, uh, a lot of people from Cowichan. It was people in the social services. And all of us would gather in a circle and regularly talk about what's the vision for a system that would actually serve people. And uh, I think some strides, well, it's not just that I think, strides have been made. Um, One of the cases was uh, the Hawaiian mom whose baby was taken from her at birth, 
And there was a Supreme Court of BC case brought by Megan Giltrow, the lawyer, who was also the lawyer for Blueberry First Nation. She is a superhero. Look her up. Have her on. Yeah. Have her on your show. She is a little more good. She is a lot more good. She is the best. I love <laughs> That's her what so we're much. looking for. Amazing. Megan Giltrow. Um, and, uh, and she argued that this baby's human right to being breastfed uh, was being denied. And that baby was returned to his mom. And that initiated a change in policy around breastfeeding babies and protects their right to be with their mom, right? Um, the notion that we would remove an infant from its mother at birth is barbaric. And we know that there are programs that support moms and that are enormously successful. It benefits the baby, it benefits the mom, it benefits all of us. Mm -hmm. So that's one system, and I've been really committed to that, to that work. You know, <laughs> and back to Sean again, the, 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 the nugget at the heart of what happened in Sean again was that the, uh, the Campbell government in 2001 brought in something called professional reliance. And instead of having government oversight of, of resource uh, industry and what was happening on the land in BC, they got rid of all the expertise in government and they said to industry, hire your own experts, and we'll listen to them. <laughs> like you can imagine how this went. And over the next couple of decades, there were all of these examples where the qualified professionals hired by industry to tell government that everything's fine, in fact, it didn't work out so well, particularly in forestry uh, mining. Mm -hmm. Mount Polly is an example of this, where professional reliance was cited as one of the contributing factors to the biggest mining disaster in Canadian history. And in Shawnigan, we had a special case there. The engineers who were tasked with the design and reporting to government had a secret 50-50 profit-sharing deal with the landfill owners, which we only found out because a whistleblower, you know, got the document to us under a door in our watershed office. And that was ultimately, it still took like almost a year. And, and what was so shocking to find out, I thought, well, no government's going to be okay with that, like a profit-sharing deal, right? These are the guys you're relying on, and they're, <laughs> they're benefiting from every dump truck that comes to the site. And what we found out was, no, no, under professional reliance, you're allowed to have a profit-sharing deal. You're just, not, you're just not supposed to keep it secret. <laughs> So here's a system that clearly isn't designed to serve the protection of environment and, the, and, and well-being and public protection, protection of the public. Um, I would say, like all of our systems, we just did a press conference about healthcare. And we don't have a healthcare system. We have a whole bunch of individual operators, family docs who run their own businesses and then build the government, right? Yeah. What we need is a system, like a school system, where the buildings are there, there's your community health center, and you walk into that building, whatever your health needs are, they're met. You're in the right place. And that's a team of health professionals. There's a doctor and a nurse practitioner and a psychologist and a dietitian, a physiotherapist and a social worker, whatever you need. And they're all working as a team. Hmm. And as a team, they can meet all your health needs. And we can focus on preventative health care. And we can be sure that like, you're not in some kind of 
I don't know, amazing race kind of scenario to try to find a family doctor, right? Like all the people here, you have your list and you're calling and you're hoping and maybe my lottery ticket's going to come up and the reality is one in five people don't have a family doctor. Mm-hmm. So there's a system that's not working. Our education system, oh boy. I mean, we're both teachers. Yeah. And, you know, I love teaching. I'm still in touch with a lot of my students. Um, but I just had the great fortune of taking one course at UVic called Creating a Pro-Social Classroom. And that was the only course that mattered. Mm. Because the curriculum, fine. I mean, we can get through that. But how your classroom works and building a community in your classroom and centering that collective well-being of your your room and your students and making it the responsibility of everybody in that room when i've approached teaching in that way you can perform miracles those Mm -hmm. kids can perform miracles they're extraordinary right they have a sense of belonging they have a sense of safety they have a sense of responsibility and that should be the foundation for how we then go out into the world as adults. We've learned in our classrooms how to be good citizens. And I'm not talking like civics. Like civics class is good. We need that, right? We clearly need civics. <laughs> but I mean how to be. And our, our education system should be oriented to not only creating conditions of well-being for children and teachers and everybody in that system, but that those young people come out of our education system. And sure, they might know calculus and chemistry and how to write a hamburger essay or all of these things. But more importantly, they know how to be in a society and how to understand that my interactions with you, your well-being is connected to my well-being whether or not we've ever met. And this is what our education system should be geared toward. Mm. And I think, you know, we both know, in a system that is operating in scarcity and operating from a place of there's never enough to go around, there's not enough teachers to go around, there aren't enough EAs to go around, there are certainly not enough school counselors to go around, there aren't enough resources to go around, There isn't enough joy to go around. I mean, kids should be going to school, and it should be a place of joy. Mm -hmm. And for it to be a place of joy, it has to be a place of joy for teachers. And for it to be a place of joy for teachers, teachers need to be supported, and they need to be trusted, and there needs to be a sense of how do we build this together. So our systems are built to achieve outcomes that are not, serving our society right now and we are you know we've we now have to layer on okay we're going to put anti-racism on top of this system that has perpetuated racism for generations now we're going to put anti-homophobia on top of this system and we're going to put anti-ableism on top of how about we make the system be pro (laughs) right pro-human and that those 12 years that kids are in school are about how to be the most human we can be. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's beautiful. I, I mean, it really comes back, I think, to to that theme of what you were saying before of like the the foundation of it has to be like that love and recognizing as, you know, 13 to kind of 18 year olds, like that intrinsic value that they can develop in those really, really formative years is that connection to other, right? It's, a, it's a development of self, but in doing that, it's part and parcel with connection to other and recognizing their place in the community, in the world with one another, not as some random individual, but as part of this collective. Can I tell a story? Yes, please. So uh, I hadn't been teaching for long and I, oh, I got a contract at Spectrum uh, school in Victoria, big high school, and it was a little daunting, you know, and I, I got it partway through the year, and I took over a couple of social 11s class and, uh, and an English class, and I go into the socials 11 class, and one, th- these kids loved their teacher. She was on uh, sick leave, Okay. and so I walk in, and they're like, who do you think you are, lady, right? And so already, I'm, you know, I'm like, oh, hello, I'm the interloper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I, I start by trying to teach the way that she taught. And she taught like it was PowerPoint Express. It was like, we are just going to hammer you with so much info and we're gonna, just going to drum this into you. And after about a week, the kids were miserable and I was miserable. And this didn't make sense for how I wanted to teach. And I was like, okay, we're throwing the PowerPoints out the window. And we're going to teach. I'm going to do something different. And and so that was, uh, that was one thing. But I had a kid at the back of that class, and he sat there. He, he was he had his baseball cap on. He was always down in his seat. He was always looking down, and it was like, oh, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not picking up what you're putting down, lady. And he, we got to about midway through the the term. And he was sitting at about 30%. And uh, he comes to me and he says, I'm, I'm going to drop the course. And I said, well, you know, I, I think we can find a, a way around this. And he said, well, I want to because I want to be an RCMP officer. But I need Socials 11 to graduate and I need it for my credits. And, and I said, well, then let's, let's figure this out. And so I said, I will be here every morning and you can come in half an hour before school starts and we will go over, you can ask me questions, we'll review, and you can start doing the assignments here that you've missed and that'll you know, help with your grade. So for several weeks, he'd come in in the mornings and he'd get these assignments done and things were going really well and then there was a midterm and he missed it. And he comes back and he's like, yeah, I just can't do it, it's too hard. And I said, no, I don't believe you. Like, we're going to do this, right? Come back. And so he came back again, and he kept working through everything. And we got to exam period, and he was still working through all the assignments to make sure that he got all the work done. And by the time he was going in to write his final exam, he was sitting in the mid-60s. And so he was going to pass this course, like, no matter how, right? But because he had done all the work, he went into that exam so prepared. He aced it. He did (laughs) great right? He did so great. And he came and found me, you know, I was picking up my stuff and, and uh, cleaning up. And he gave me a card and I still have it. And it was the best card I've ever gotten as a teacher. <laughs> and he said, 
You're the best teacher I've ever had, and I'm not just saying. And it was a connection. It was, I believe in you. I'm rooting for you. I'm here for you. And you can do this. I, I know you can do this. Mm-hmm. And to this day, like I have lots of happy teaching stories, but I think about him and that he had a dream and that that door on that dream didn't close because I chose, I made a choice mm-hmm. uh, to invest. And I think that it, that carries into the work I do now. I'm, I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to say, I, you know, I, you're just not doing so great. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to invest. I love I love the human connection, the human relationships, the stories and and I love that you know the stories that stick for yourself as a teacher. It's not the the natural straight straight A student that walked in and you know it was a breeze and they went on to, you know, Ace University and Dime a dozen. Dime a dozen. I was just I was just thinking as we were talking about the system of school and I was listening to Seth Godin recently mm-hmm. and, and he was talking about how the school system's impossible to succeed because the work, um, the world of, of employment evolves so quickly. When we're five years old, 90% of the jobs don't exist yet that we'll, we'll be applying for when we're 18. So mm-hmm. like when I was five, there was no Instagram or Facebook or Airbnb or Uber or, you know, everything was kind of decentralized and changed and none of those jobs, none of the internet jobs existed when I was in kindergarten. So he's like, the only thing that school should be teaching are, are kindness, leadership, problem solving, and finance. It's like everything else is changing, like especially now with like AI, like all of these yeah. jobs that were training kids to do math equations and, and chemistry, like this is all things that are going to be I mean, not irrelevant, it'll never be relevant, but it'll be in in a job marketplace, it'll be replaced by AI, most likely within the next, you know, 15 years. Yeah. So if we, if we can teach our kids problem solving and leadership and kindness, you know, they're going to have a good chance of doing well in life. And he included finance in that, but... Um, I, w- I would love if we could have a school system that was based around around those principles, you know? Like my 17-year-old, uh, he graduated at 16. Uh, he's taking a year off right now. He's working at Subway yes. and at a running store. He is a runner. He loves running. He wants to do a sub 40 10K yes. in April, and he's on track for it. When he was in uh, sort of the middle years, like grade four, five, six... Um, it was really clear that school wasn't meeting his needs. He is a deeply curious, deeply driven kid. He would go to the library and get books on a topic and just read them all and become an expert on that topic, uh, including at one point finances. Amazing. Um, And so we worked with his school at the time to make it okay for him to stay home most of the time and be self-directed. And uh, one of the projects he did for grade six was he wrote a novel. Hmm. Uh, it was a future kind of oriented novel. Um, Trump had found a way to be uh, alive forever. This was like 200 years in the future. Um, and, uh, and then he uh, switched to a high school that he really enjoyed. 
and and leaned into but all the things you said he spends his spare time right now he's building an app a guitar app uh by himself using ai to help him do the coding i don't know where he, he taught himself coding uh he's managing his own finances uh he cooks us dinner every night thank you peter we love dinner that's amazing he's a very good cook uh He's runner. He's he's really loves playing guitar and and asks his teacher like, give me the hardest song there is to learn, and that's that, I want to master that. He plays piano, and and I look back on those years and I think, if we had forced him into this box that didn't work for him, that was really like it wasn't moving at the pace he needed to, he couldn't connect with. He loves spending time with adults. He's just you know, this is just how he's wired. Um, would we have actually tamped out that that drive and that desire to learn, that curiosity, that discipline that he's mm-hmm. created himself? He has an enormous amount of discipline, right? And again, like you, just ramming people into systems and saying, you have to shift to fit into this, we break people. And, and I'm so grateful, you know, I think he was our fourth or fifth between us. We have five kids and mine, his and our scenario. Had he been our first, we probably wouldn't have had the wherewithal to be like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to trust you on this. Yeah. But by the time we're at the fourth, like, sure, you know, let's make this work for you. (laughs) And, uh, again, just lessons, uh, to learn and, and not assuming that we understand everything. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I, th- I think we we trust our our colonial patriarchy system that we need to you know de decolonize. Is we don't need to have the answers, Mm-mm. you know. And often other people have the answers, and we can lean into not knowing or asking or being curious rather than having to. To believe that we know what's best, you know. Yeah, even uh, I'm all, I'm all for it as a teacher, but in the next year and coming years, the Ministry of Education has invited teachers to create a new course that honors BC Indigenous peoples and an Indigenous peoples of Canada course. And they're going to be like graduation requirements. Mm-hmm. And it's great. Mm-hmm. We need to start incorporating and including more than just in maybe like a tokenistic gesture. Let's put a poster up in our classroom. But I also, as an educator and as, you know, uh, someone who represents a system of oppression for indigenous people, I'm like, isn't it curious that now we as educators are going to like plunk mm-hmm. this like you had kind of said, lay it over top of this existing foundation, which committed so much harm. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's not the exact same institution, but close enough when you look at how, you know, indigenous students are represented in our schools and, and you know, the data is there to say who thrives and who doesn't. And to know that these systems to say, here, we're going to do another class. Here's our rubric. We're going to assess you in this colonial way mm-hmm. and we're going to give you a mark at the end of this learning ah, to me i'm like i think it's like the step in the right direction and i think the gesture is beautiful and the invitation to have teachers and students like have these conversations of learning but at the same time i'm like i feel weird about teaching this yeah. course that's like 
in the context of the system that we should we should be relooking at the whole system and saying what's a way that we could apply indigenous wisdom and indigenous indigenous ways of knowing and teaching to the whole thing not mm-hmm. just we're going to slot in this course and make it a grad requirement cedar george parker you didn't say well tooth uh son of reuben george mm. uh i've had the pleasure of of spending time with cedar uh on and off a, a number of times in the last few years and the last few times i've seen him and talked with him he has this he said something that just changed my whole view and mm. he said we need to humanize our politics and we need to indigenize our institutions thank you cedar yes and so as opposed to saying oh here's a course now we've ticked the box of you know where we've got indigenous curriculum in our school system that as you say has perpetrated enormous harm to indigenous people how do we how do we ask ourselves what would it mean to indigenize this institution what yeah. would it mean to look at indigenous ways of knowing and indigenous ways of being which put children at the center and well-being of children at the center and how do we then learn from the people that have been here for millennia about what would a child-centered approach to education look like right yeah that's what we need to do yeah we need to let go of these boxes that we're really trapped in these stories that we're trapped in about what education is making a worker oh my Mm -hmm. Uh, i want human i want humans yeah i want people who know how to be and not just how to do right right i want people that are like excited to work collaboratively, not just like on a PowerPoint presentation, but on like solving things and imagining different different ways that we could all be. And uh, we have so much potential for this, right? Like it's, and it's it's really a matter of letting go of of these these stories that tell us no you have to limit your imagination mm. to these narrow confines because that's the way it's always been right right <laughs> well that that's not doing so well for us right now yeah and imagine if we said well i think the way it could be is this yeah we could have collective well-being we could have child-centered education we could have people-centered healthcare. we could have a way of looking at our collective wealth and saying how do we how do we make more people benefit more from all of this wealth that we have Mm -hmm. it's all of this is possible yeah yeah it's seeing it's seeing what's possible and not not those limitations yeah. I remember on my practicum teaching about the Industrial Revolution in Social Studies 8 and coming to the part of the textbook where it talks about like the in the industrial school systems and I was like, "Oh, we're still there." We're still there. This is th- literally the the lights are nicer and we have some technology that they didn't have, but 
this is the industrial school system created like bells. You go to the next room and you sit and you do the thing and then the bell and then you go to the next room. It's like, oh my God, we're still doing we're still it. There. It's crazy. Or, and or, we're still mostly in a, you know, in a primary economy mindset here. Yes. We're a resource colony. Yes. Come on. We can like... We can do so much better than this. Yeah, yeah. You it's know, like we're, we're, we're not the here for the, the the industrial barons to come and extract as much wealth as possible in the shortest amount of time. Yeah, like come on, we can imagine something different. Yeah, P- picking up on something you said, and it's a question that I had uh, at the outset, and so I'm kind of glad that we can we can touch on it, um, and maybe borrowing just from the wisdom that you shared from Cedar George Parker, humanizing um, our institutions and humanize our politics humanize our politics and indigenize our institutions what does it look like for us to begin to like decolonize government Mm -hmm. can we do that should we be doing that how does that look when we start to talk about ownership and recognition of whose land we are on Mm -hmm. and occupying and how maybe we haven't done the best job of sharing leadership and learning from reciprocity and you know, borders that don't bump up against, but to overlap and transcend. And so how are some ways that we might be able to indigenize our, our political institution or decolonize it perhaps? Yeah. And, you know, one, I'm going to say, in addition to Megan Giltro, you need Adam Olson on this show. And, and you need to talk to Adam about his, his way of understanding uh, colonization, colonialism, and being an indigenous person in this world. Uh, and being in the legislature. Adam is extraordinary and has taught me and our team so much. And so when we, you know, start with, we use this word colonization, right? Or decolonize. And I think sometimes we don't pause and ask ourselves, what, what, is, what is colonization? What is decolonizing, right? And, and this is great because I think we have to, push at these what does this mean when we talk about this mm-hmm. and adam is so uh so effective and so clear in talking about this but colonization in its origin and, and i taught you know 20th century and i also studied medieval and early modern history um this notion of you know european uh monarchs basically looking at the world and saying well, let's figure out how to divvy that up amongst us, shall we? That's what colonization was, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was these nations uh, moving out into the rest of the world, worlds inhabited by sophisticated, uh, very impressive civilizations everywhere. <laughs> you know, whether we're talking about South America, North America, Africa, Asia. But the story of colonization is, here we were, the sophisticated Europeans, and we were bringing civilization to the rest of the world. In fact, they were destroying civilization. Mm-hmm. That, it, was a, it was a process of destruction. And then it was a process of imposition. This is, what it, this is what civilization is. And so where do we see that? In our institutions. We see it in, just as we've talked about, the education. Uh, we see it in the child welfare in Canada in particular. We see it in the the role that government has played, which is, as Adam describes it, removing Indigenous people from the land so that industry can come in and extract the wealth. 
that's the history. And so understanding that, that we are now at this point where we're, we're recognizing this was a very harmful uh, process unfolding over hundreds of years, and it has decimated uh, people and culture and language and civilizations all over the world. And it, because it has positioned, the colonizers have positioned themselves as superior. And this is where, you know, when we talk about white supremacy, uh, this is the foundation of colonization. It's that, you know, there is a superior group of people and they are now moving in on the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And it came with enslavement, it came with genocide, it came with uh, very unindigenous institutions, that's for sure. So what does it mean for us to to really lean into decolonizing? One, I think it's just like telling the truth, knowing knowing the history of this and um, and that to to learn that history, we have to learn from something other than the grade eight textbooks. I mean, I remember my my grade eight social studies textbook too. Um, you know, because uh, that's one that's one story. Um, and it's starting. My daughter in grade 10 is her whole year has been indigenous history and learning about residential schools and learning about language and culture. And I'm really grateful that this is this is this is a generational change. It's not enough. And as Adam has pointed out, for example, when we have forest range practice agreements between government and First Nations that are literally colonial documents where they say in the agreement, you will be allocated this much money for the trees that are taken off of your territory. And here are the ways that you will be allowed to spend that money. And if you don't spend that money in the appropriate ways, we won't give you the money. <laughs> That's today. Whoa. That's BC today. We are a long ways from decolonization. I'm in a, a situation in my riding. I just, on my way here, was talking to John Coleman. He's a Cowichan contractor, has been at his job for 35 years, employing, training Cowichan people to be in the trades. Uh, and we have a $1.45 billion hospital being built in our riding. And Cowichan, the largest First Nation in BC, and the Kowatsin Development Corporation, which employs Cowichan people, has been blocked out of this because they're not in the special unions. That's colonialism. And as John has been saying over and over, and I, again, I'm so grateful for him and the friendship that I've been able to develop with him, start with the territory. Start there. Start with the conversation. If you want to really lean into reconciliation. You don't make a whole bunch of decisions and then try to make it okay. You start on the territory mm -hmm. and you start with the people who have been on that territory forever. And then we start to change things. But as long as we are just, it's the same as the education. If we're just kind of layering some nice language and we're layering some, you know, 
some small changes to processes, but we're still getting to the same place. Mm -hmm. That's not decolonization. Right. That's status quo. Mm -hmm. And maybe even more dangerously so because it can be under the guise of yes. we're, we're, we're doing the work. We are decolonizing or we are addressing these things, but really it's very surface or minor. And, you know, you could make the argument something is better than nothing, but at the same time, it's like it could be perpetuating even more harm. When the words don't match the reality, that then you are you are breaking trust. Yeah. You are breaking trust and you are breaking people's hope. And this is this has become far too much of the the kind of dominant political landscape. And when we have more people who are employed as comms people in a government, then we have journalists. We have a problem, right? Because journalism and independent press is a pillar of democracy. You need people who are going to tell you what's happening behind those doors. When are they not telling you the truth? When did they say something and not do it? When have they lied to you? When are they, what is informing their decisions? We need the people who are just constantly digging mm -hmm. at that to hold those governments to account, keep them honest, and inform the public about what's going on. And then the public's job is be informed, understand what's going on, and hold hold people to account. Yeah. The, there is a very complex web of relationships and roles in a democracy. And if if we aren't, you know, we just saw another round of layoffs of some of BC's best political journalists. We just lost another handful of them. We're down to the bare bones. That's not good. That's dangerous. And then you've got this PR machine that's just kind of like a Lego movie. Everything is awesome. Everything is awesome all the time. Everything is awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And people are like, this does not match the reality that I'm experiencing. Yeah. And it's not like I, I also have a problem with like everything is broken. Give me a break. Mm -hmm. Right? Things can be better. Mm -hmm. Orient ourselves towards that. Identify what we're measuring. Measure well-being. There's ways of doing this. New Zealand just put out its first well-being report. Measure whether or not your investments as a government, your policies, and your legislation are increasing well-being for the people you serve. That's the measure. Mm. Got a little. I got a little wound up. Oh, I love okay. that. The hands. The hands were going. <laughs> I like it. Inve yeah. Invest in well-being, man. If we could only, you know, we wake up and we look at the newspaper and we look at our stocks and we're like, well-being is way up. You know, could you yes. imagine that world? Yes, I can. Actually, there is a report from right now. You yes. can find it. Te Tawaiora, It's called. It's the well-being report of New Zealand. And literally, they say on these aspects of well-being, things have gone up. On these ones. They've gone flat. On these ones, they've gone down. And a government that measures that knows where to invest. What a metric. You know, that's putting the individuals, the relationships, the people at the center of the politics. It is. Uh, one, one question I have, um, you know, I, I, I think it's important what you said to not focus on what's broken because that's very true. I think we can get apathetic and we can give up... Um, 
give up hope or give mm-hmm. up activism or, or just give up on too many things if we just assume things are broken. There's a lot of great things and there's a lot of people fixing things. Um, but not to go back to <laughs> what's broken. Um, you said, you know, we have a problem when our words and our actions aren't mm-hmm. aligned. And I think it's become obvious in a lot of ways. And I think that's great because it is illuminating those fractures and we're giving space for things to to become fixed and mm-hmm. become true and to get to that that human um, happiness at, at the core of that metric. But one of the ones that I just keep hitting my head against the wall is um, kind of the greenwashing and, mm-hmm. and climate change. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're on Vancouver Island and we mm-hmm. saw what kind of Ferry Creek really illuminated the ugliness of that industry and, and a lot of these issues that we, we've brought up so far in the conversation. How do we address the root cause of these things like climate change and get to a solution where we're not pushing that rock down two generations, we're addressing it now so that our future generations, that our children have, you know, they're living, I mentioned the word regenerative again, they're living mm-hmm. in a regenerative world instead mm-hmm. of one where the resources are, are being depleted faster than they mm-hmm. can regenerate. I was in a meeting the other day and um, somebody used the term greed economy. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it, it, you know, I think we have to get out of a greed economy. Canfor, in the last two years, got $2.3 billion in profit out of BC. Right? $2.3 billion in removing trees from BC, and now they're closing the mills. That's a greed economy. Like, how much is enough? Yeah. How much profit do you need? Uh, and why is there not a reciprocal relationship with the people who are doing the work that earns you that profit and with the land that you are extracting that wealth from? And again, with the people who have been here forever. So a greed economy is how much can I take? What's the fastest way I can take it? And, and who cares about anything else? That's, that's what we're measuring. We're mm-hmm. measuring profits. We're measuring GDP. That's what a greed economy does. Uh, a regenerative economy, a restorative economy, uh, a well-being economy. And again, it's not just New Zealand. New Zealand, Iceland, and Scotland have a well-being alliance. They're all measuring their economies this way. They're measuring their budgets this way. They're measuring their work as government this way. We can do this. Hmm. Um, until we measure something different than just raw economic activity, we're stuck here because that's the prize. And um, Ferry Creek uh, is, is an example of this. Like, these, this is one of the last intact watersheds. One of the last. This isn't something that just belongs to BC crown land or to Teal Jones to get profit off of it, or even to the, the First Nation that's been there forever. This is something globally that we have a responsibility to say, uh-oh, we've blown it. There's 1% left on Vancouver Island of intact forest. This is one of the only fully intact watersheds. 
we got to stop. Because how much is enough? How much greed is enough? Mm -hmm. How much profit is enough? Exxon, $44 billion in profit. $63 million an hour, apparently, is the calculation. <laughs> like That's wild. How much is enough? And I, I think, you know, we have a billionaire problem. We have a wealth problem. I think we should reset this and say, you know what? You hit a billion. You win. You win capitalism. Congratulations. Now you're going to give 90% of it back and we're going to do good things with that money. And there you go. There's your, you know, 100 million. It's more than enough. You'll be fine. Right? Yeah. Uh, Rugger Bregman, you know, his, his famous kind of quote about here we are talking all these billionaires all the world's wealthiest people gathering and talking about how we're going to solve the problems and he's like taxes taxes right it's not your job as a billionaire to decide how to you are the problem <laughs> you're the problem right we don't need more of you we need fewer of you and all that wealth that you are hoarding that's an illness hoarding is an illness yeah you should not, nobody needs $30 billion. It's, it's, come on, it's nonsensical. Yeah. And so <laughs> if we say, you know, these are the, the, the foundational basic things that we are going to meet as a society, people's needs are going to be met. Just their basic needs. People's basic needs. We can do this. We're going to have communities that are connected and that have the infrastructure to thrive. People can thrive. That's like rapid transit and that's, you know, really great education system and community health centers and places that everybody can access, whether you're in a wheelchair or you're blind or you are fully abled. There is, there is public space and we're going to be in it together and we're going to enjoy it together. And then we have healthy ecosystems because we need clean water and clean air and good soil to be well. Like, we need those things. We can't do it. There's no pill that's going to fix that. And finally, we trust our government. We trust our institutions. Those four things, I've been thinking about this for a long time. If we oriented ourselves to those four things, at the middle of that is collective well-being. And we can do this. But what we have to let go of is creating the conditions for a relentlessly hungry, greedy, extractive economy. And it, whether it's extracting old growth trees or oil and gas or every ounce out of a human being that it can take, none of that contributes to our collective well-being. All of it takes away from it. And we have to be able to say, we can measure differently. We can measure success of our economies differently than what we do right now. Because the way we're measuring success right now is not serving us. Mm. It's harming us. And it's making the conditions for our children and our grandchildren impossible for them to expect to thrive. And if nothing else, as humans, I can't understand that we can't be oriented towards creating the conditions for, we do it, 
when they come along, you guys know this. Oh, baby's coming. What do we do? We get the room ready. We get all the nice colored things. We get all the nice music we're going to play. And there's going to be the white noise. And there's the rocking chair. And there's mom. And she's got a bosom full of milk. (laughs) Right? And that baby is brought into the world as the most valued the most valued person in our world and we orient our lives towards them and then slowly over the years they get the message oh i'm not i'm not actually and not you know from the bigger world you get sent to this classroom and it's it's indifferent it's cold and so that that message to that child is eh, you matter a bit but not that much and mostly we want you to just behave and not make trouble because your parents have to go and be extracted, right? Be in this extractive economy. And I have so much faith and belief in humans that we can imagine our way out of this and create something that our kids don't have to forgive us for. Mm. <laughs> That's so good. I just made that up. (laughs) I love it. It's like giving me goosebumps. Yeah. I feel like so often the answer is like, let's innovate. Let's innovate our way out. And I love that you want us to imagine our way forward. And, you know, the the kind of four um, entities or pillars or however we would describe it that you outlined with with this collective well-being, like at the center is... uh, I'm, I was thinking, and as you were speaking, I'm just like, how could anyone not want this? Hearing hearing you, like, I would just encourage everyone to listen. <laughs> if you listen to anything, like, fast forward, <laughs> listen to this timestamp and hear that and catch the vision of, like, what's possible. Because even if that's our baseline, yeah. what's possible from there is uh, unbelievable, the, yeah. the world that could be created, the communities that could be created, the support, the flourishing of individuals that could happen within that is just like the, the invitation to experience that paradigm mm. is so beautiful. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. I, it was like an injection of hope. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like um, that's yeah, really yeah. <laughs> no, I, wa- I want to just echo Dean's sentiment there. I'm so you know grateful for your storytelling. Uh, for sharing your history, um, I, I am filled with hope, and and I think the idea of possibility and curiosity and um, that lights me up. So so thank you so much. Um, I've got one more question, and Dean, I don't know if you have others, but we have a closing question. We ask okay. everyone. Um, I I think you've you've woven this through the tapestry of this conversation, but. I love, um, you know, starting with why, and I think mm-hmm. it's your why is evident. But I think for those listening, just to to make it clear, um, you know, you're orienting with purpose and joy. Can you can you share what is your mission? What is your why mm-hmm. in what you do? I would say, and I, I, there's no way for me to be like there's a static why, mm-hmm. right? What it isn't is power (laughs) that's not the thing it is it is exactly what i just said it is it is that i i i believe so deeply that we can do so much better and that governments can play this role in in shaping 
our world today in shaping the future in a way that moves us to this place of, of far greater possibility than where we're at right now. Mm. And I, I, I look at my own life story, starting with my dad. Look at the opportunities this teenager <laughs> from Germany had. He came, he was 15 when he came here. And that he was able to give back in such an incredible way to this country that he loved so much. I mean, he loved Canada. This was a dream come true to be here. And as a professor and a teacher and a parent, he gave back so much because he was given the opportunities. And then I think about myself and I am an, a beneficiary of good government policy. So early childhood education, I got a year of that when I was five. Turned me into a lifelong learner. I didn't know what how great it was to be a learner until I had that. And I went into grade one. I could read. I could write. I was excited about the world, and I was ready, right? That's, that's what every child... When we talk about child care spaces, that's GDP. When we talk about early childhood education that puts children's well-being, that's measuring well-being. That's genuine progress indicators. That's identifying. We're not doing this because we need kids in their spaces for the economy. We're doing this because we are honoring children. Hmm. And if we start by honoring children, the possibilities are endless. I was in French immersion. Almost even this job, every job I've had, being able to speak French, was an asset. It, it almost always clinched me getting the job, right? And I'm, to this day, I'll do interviews with Radio Canada. They're like, oh, we love you, Sonia, because you'll do your interviews in French, right? And what was that? That was a policy brought in by Pierre Trudeau recognizing if we wanted to really pull this country together, language is how you do that. And you know, I went on a French exchange to Trois-Rivières when I was 13 years old. Kissed my first boy, Chrétien Roy, if you're still out there. <laughs> Hello. There's another story <laughs> for, for another pot. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, language is an avenue to, to understanding how people see the world differently. Adam talks about the salmon people and the cedar people in his language, in Senchothan. Everything is a person. <clears throat> and if you have language that says everything is a person, then you orient yourself differently to the world around you. Language shapes our reality. I had, free, I, I came here, it was a tuition freeze. I got to go to school for as long as I wanted. It was great. I got to just swim in scholarship and learn and love learning and as a single mom, I had a childcare subsidy, so my kid could have really good early childhood education as well. So all of these things that supported me along the way allowed me to, I think, give back, right? Be a teacher and, and be a, a person in my community that could find ways to, to move us together and and then be in this role that I'm in and, and really say, 
you, you can raise your expectations of politicians. Like you really can. You can have a higher bar. Let's all do it. Let's hmm. raise the bar, right? Let's, let's feel joyful about politics. It should be joyful. It's about envisioning a future that we build together and the steps that we take together right now. And so that's a long answer to the why. But I, I go back to things I wrote 10 years ago, and I sound just like this. Mm -hmm. I, I am fortunate enough to be in a place in my life where I actually get to be my whole self in this role. A thing afforded to very few politicians, I think. I think politicians get into their roles, you're in a box, you're saying your message box, and you got to be careful and don't step out of line, and you got to vote this way even though you don't believe in it. And, and the, all of that is corrosive. I want people that are just as passionate and excited about the future as me. I want to hear their ideas, and I think if we put all our ideas on the table and just mucked around in that, we could perform miracles too. That's what politics should be. Amazing. So good. Right, Dean, before I said that was my last question, but I have one small one before we get to our closer. If, if, if you can... Uh, if you can give me the time. Um, I'm so curious, just as a takeaway, listening to this for, for, for those listening and joining this conversation, um, you're, you kind of had your origins in activism and, and being a steward for mm -hmm. your community and your land. I'm curious what you think, um, how citizens can be activists, what effective activism looks, looks like to you um, so that you know our whole society can be active in this mm -hmm. this democracy mm -hmm. identify what you're for mm. and and that was a turning point in Shawnigan as well because as long as we were like we're against this this contaminated landfill that, that's pretty hard to sustain anger is hard to sustain even righteous anger is hard mm -hmm. to sustain and uh we met, Calvin Cook and I, we were sort of the, the co-leaders. He was president of the Shawnigan Residents Association. And we met uh, with a woman who does amazing things with communications, Commanda. And she said, I've looked through all these things. I don't really know what you're for. And then we, we thought, okay, what are we for? Well, we're for a future in Shawnigan Lake that includes clean water and a healthy community. And as soon as we articulated it in that way, it became so clear what we were doing and why we were doing it and how we could come together with joy and hope and love and laughter and fun. And, and that is the most, like, I have seen people uh, recently who used to be on the, the dump site management crew standing up there at 5.30 in the morning, pouring rain, freezing wind, everything, and, and standing in front of these giant dump trucks. And they've said to me, I miss those days mm -hmm. because we were together. We were united in this effort and we knew what we were for. So know what you're for. What is that? What is that thing on the horizon? What does it look like? What does it feel like? How do we know we're getting there? And then orient yourself from a place of love for that and with the people around you. We are in danger, I think, of seeing protests being 
you just shout and swear at people. And that does not get us anywhere. I don't know what, what you're for if you're, if you're swearing at people. I, honestly, I have no idea. But if you can articulate what it is you really believe in and why it is you want us to get there together, you can move mountains. Mm. That's so good. Earlier on in the conversation when you were telling the story for the first time about um, kind of your your initial kind of foray into this movement, uh, in Sean again I wrote, rallying for (laughs) rather than against. And I mean, you just, yeah, so eloquently put that. And I think that you really embody the spirit of what can we be for? Mm -hmm. It's important to know the things that you're working to minimize and all that, but like really like our starting point is what are we for? And let's chase that and let's pursue that with enthusiasm and joy. And it's so much more imaginative, which is just wonderful. Um, so thank you for being someone who's for things um, rather than just pointing out what we should be against and leading with the negative, but leading with that rather the positive and the hopeful and the optimistic um, invitation to be for things. Uh, and thank you for sharing your time, your stories with us. Um, it's always, always so deeply appreciated when someone opens up and yeah, shares a bit of their life beyond just what they do, mm-hmm. but really, truly who they are. And you you did that so, um, so freely. So thank you. Um, as Zach mentioned, we have a kind of closing question that we ask all of our guests. And in many ways, I think you've touched on it throughout this whole conversation, but I will ask it anyway. Okay. And you can, <laughs> as succinctly or as, you know, with as much time as you need, you can respond. But we created this podcast um, because we wanted to, you know, put things out in the world that were inspirational and hope-filled messages and would help people to maybe just move move the needle of their life to say, oh, I didn't think that mm-hmm. way before. And on a run, Zach shared this title of A Little More Good. He's mm-hmm. like, I really think this is what we should call it. And right away it resonated. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yes. That is the title. And so we'd love to ask uh, our guests, what does that phrase or that little sentiment mean mm. to you a little more good? That's funny. Even even just you saying it kind of shifts the, the sense of feeling or the being, right? And I think uh, in everything we can do, we can try to be a little more good. We can try to do a little more good because... A lot can feel overwhelming, but a little, that feels, that feels doable, right? And it's amazing how much a whole bunch of little can turn into a lot. And for me, you know, I think what we need right now largely is a little more belief in the good in all of us that we can have different ideas about things. We can even have different views of the future, but that the vast majority of people are good. And let's find that little more good in everybody around us. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Sonia. Thank you for this conversation, for this time. Um, there's this this definition of, of wisdom that we learned recently that uh, wisdom equates to equal parts knowledge and curiosity and I think uh, you embody this and I'm excited to to follow your journey and um, it lights me up with hope and and possibility and curiosity so so thank you thank you both this has been such a treat I'm I'm 
filled right up. <laughs> Likewise. Yeah. All right. Until next time. Thanks. Thank you. All right. All right. You know, what a, what a conversation, my friend. That one, uh, you know, just kind of recapping that, uh, that conversation we got to be a part of filled me with love, filled me with joy, filled me with hope. I had goosebumps multiple times in the conversation, just feeling the excitement. I was charged by what Sonia was saying. Yeah, she really does just create such a cool idea of what's possible, uh, a hope-filled version of the future, which really, like, so much of politics we see is, is, you know, more of the same and kind of incremental, like, just little by little changes. And just hearing someone who is involved in politics and in a leadership role really starting to implement you know, those, those changes right away, even if it's something, you know, like for her own staff and team, like that four day work week and honoring people's time and recognizing output and rest and balancing those things. Like it's just those little things that not just, you know, lip service, but putting into action. And then of course, those kind of larger sweeping, beautiful, holistic ideas of how to make a, make a, a healthy society centered on our well-being, and measuring that over and above anything else. I just so so inspiring and you know leaves me leaves me hopeful for what might be one day in our communities. Yeah, I feel ya. I feel ya. Um, yeah, this is as close as I would get to you know. I don't want to be a podcast endorsing any political figures, but I think uh, as you're saying, Dean, the the message, the vision that that Sonia shares. And the way she embodies this message herself, she truly walks her own talk. Um, I hope her the best uh, for, you know, for her own success. But uh, I also am hopeful that her success will bring uh, a united, healthy uh, province um, as we kind of grow in our own ways. I'm, I'm full with hope and uh, just pleased that we got to share that conversation with Sonia. Yes, definitely. And I would say if it resonated at all with you, um, obviously you can you can let us know. But we love it when you share the episodes, when you tag us, tell a friend. Uh, I've said before, you know, the times that I've listened to episodes of different podcasts and then ended up falling in love with the podcast is always when a friend of mine shares it directly with me over Instagram or texts me or whatever. So if you're wondering, hey, I love that episode. I want to do a little more good. I want to help the guys out a little more good. Send this episode to a friend, post it on your social media, let us know what you thought. Leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. All that stuff goes a long way um, in helping promote the show. Obviously, if you're looking to up your health game, check out athleticgreens.com slash more good and get on the AG1 bandwagon. All of those things, any of them and all of them will help out the show and we'll love you for it forever. All right, friends, until next week. Stay good, y'all.